Now, if you'd like to turn with me to page 403 in your pew Bible, we're going to be reading Nehemiah um, 8, verses 1 through 12. And I would like to say there are a bunch of names in this that I'm going to butcher. So just follow along as best you can. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Matthiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah, on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Ashabadana, Zechariah, and Melshalom on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shephatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelida, Azariah, Jozebed, Hannah, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet. For this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. I love those long lists of names. Welcome to Regeneration. That's just one of our hazing practices. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, we invite you to be here with us as we look to the scriptures and we ask, Lord, that you would touch each person individually here to where they need to be ministered to by you. Lord, thanks for Sherry coming in here this morning and blessing us and leading us in worship and pray, Lord, that you would bless her ministry. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are, chapter 8, if you're new to our church what we do is we just kind of systematically go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and so this is where we're at this particular Sunday. And in chapter 8, it's kind of exciting, we meet Ezra. Ezra, he gives this wonderful public declaration to the people of Jerusalem here. Now, what does Ezra's public declaration have anything to do with us? Because we really want to see how this applies to us, how this is going to be helpful to us. Well, this does help us understand why we here at Regeneration give such high regard and great importance to the public reading, teaching, preaching of the Word of God here. And we'll look to Nehemiah 8 this morning to look at why we believe the Bible to be foundational and central to our church. Now one of the controversies about the Bible is its claim on truth to a society that is intolerant towards absolute truth. 
And there's a significant pushback in our culture toward any teaching that makes such a claim. These claims of truth, they cause just a lot of skepticism, and it causes people who are generally tolerant to become intolerant. Because how can anyone speak with authority out of a book, especially one as old as the Bible? I mean, aren't we just victims of religious brainwashing into believing such things? Now, this type of thought is what has influenced many clergy to move away from the preaching and the teaching of the Bible. But the thing is, when we move away from the Bible, we start to focus on the other things. And so we remove the focus off of the Word of God and we move them to ourselves. Then people start focusing on the person speaking rather than focusing on God's Word. So it's no wonder people need to bring in materials other than the Bible into their messages like poetry and paintings and movie clips and all sorts of other things which can be helpful. I'm not putting those things down. I think they're great in terms of a supplement or helping things be taught in the Bible, but it's not actually the Bible. And so then there's more of a focus on the entertainment rather than the simplicity of sharing God's word, which we'll find here in chapter 8. Our desire from our church is for you to hear directly from God. That's our hope. The focus for us is the scriptures, which is why we keep things pretty simple here. We can have a bunch of multimedia and all sorts of things going on, but we don't. And we don't simply because we just don't want to distract anyone from the Word of God. So that when you leave, our hope is when you're commenting about the church that you're not commenting about how someone performed. Whether it's the music the reading of God's word, the announcements, the fellowship, the community, the preaching, all these types of things, which are good things, but that you leave knowing you received the word of God, that you were filled in that way, that you were touched in that way. And so hopefully the attitude from people who come here isn't just to sit back, relax, and enjoy the show, because we don't really offer that. Hopefully, we're actively engaged, we're expectant to hear from God, to increase in our awareness, our sensitivity, our attentiveness to what the Holy Spirit is communicating to us, because this is a time for us to encounter God, an opportunity for us to respond to what he may be calling us to, and when our time together is over, I hope we are filled with peace, joy, hope to deal with the realities of your life because there are those realities in our life that many of us are dealing with and we need God to show up, don't we? We need him to be here because some of us are dealing with the loss of loved ones. We're dealing with struggling marriages. We're dealing with rebellious children who are walking away from God. We're dealing with health issues. We're dealing with addictions. We're dealing with all these things that we need God to show up. You don't need a show. You need God to show up. And so here Nehemiah 8 starts much like what we have happening here. It's a gathering. 
Verse 1, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. So they gathered in this square, the center of community life. It was a very public space for everyone to gather and to listen to what was important for everyone to know. Now, it's estimated at this time that the city was about 50,000 people. And so here, if you can imagine, 50,000 people gathered in one square, united in purpose, united and committed to building up their city, gathered as one. Now, these weren't 50,000 individual experiences. They brought together their purpose, their commitment, their contributions all together. And it wasn't about what they could receive individually, but how they could contribute toward the community together as one. Now, for our community to have unity, to have oneness, we need to come together in purpose, commitment, and contribution. And only God can bring us together like this because we are so different. There's a beauty, there's a richness in our diversity, but if you just kind of look around, like we're quite different, and you probably wouldn't be friends with the person you're right next to. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you guys are bigger than that, I don't know. But church is one of those places where you gather together for this common worship. Even though you're so different, you can come together in Jesus Christ, and it doesn't matter the socioeconomic background, the ethnic, racial divides, the age divides, the education, all towards oneness. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of your Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. We all know that we don't agree on everything. We know this about us. But there are some things we need to be united on. And at the core of who we are as followers of Jesus, there are some essentials to our oneness. Things such as the preeminence of Jesus, the importance of prayer, the authority of the Bible, the significant need for evangelism, the centrality of worship. These shared essentials are needed for us to gather as one, and we need to consistently Pray for the unity of these things. Let's continue on in verse 1 here. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. See, these people wanted to hear from God. They weren't asking for Ezra. They asked for the book of the law. The revitalization, the revival of the city was going to happen with the word of God at its foundation. So you see why we have a commitment to God's word. We want to see that for our city. And it's sad to see churches move away from the word of God with a heavier emphasis toward entertainment or music or parenting workshops, life coaching seminars, self-care classes, personal growth programs, all those sorts of things which are good in themselves. But they're not good substitutes for the word of God. If there's going to be a revival in our cities... There needs to be a foundation in the Word of God. Verses 2 through 7. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to stop when the names are there. So, verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood these 13 guys that you want to name your children after. And Ezra 
opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, these Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. Early morning to midday, and so some people say our sermons are too long. Hello, like look at this. They're at the square just listening, hearing, learning from the word of God. Ezra stood on a wooden platform. This is made out of wood right under me. A stage, right, that they had made for this purpose. And those 13 people, those elders, they took turns reading from the word of the Lord. It's not like... Ezra stood there that whole time just reading from the Word of God. I mean, that's pretty laborious. Now, in between these readings, the Levites, these guys in verse 7, they would help the people in the square understand what was being read from these guys up here. So what we have here are the elders and the leaders of the church assisting the people in understanding the scriptures because there's no way for the person speaking from the platform to help everyone understand everything about the word of God. So in our context, we need you. We need you, the small group leaders, the ministry leaders, the elders, all you people who understand the word of God to kind of be around and getting into small groups and getting involved into outreaches and getting involved into all these nooks and crannies of the church as mature believers to reach out to folks who may not have the same understanding of the scriptures as you do. In the office of elder, the elder needs to be able to teach, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, and according to Titus chapter 1, verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's what we want from our elders. That's what the people needed in Nehemiah chapter 8. And that's what our church needs from our pastors, our elders, our ministry leaders. We need the word of God, not people's opinions. To gather in expectation to hear from God and whoever is speaking from this platform is not to be the one elevated. It's the Bible that is to be elevated. People will come and go from this platform. The Bible will remain. That's one of the things that I actually really like about liturgy. Liturgy when properly observed, can be a great way to connect with God. And one thing about liturgy is just the rich symbolism that it represents. A pulpit, for example. We've moved to this small pulpit. We actually have this humongous pulpit that's like four times bigger than this in storage. I want that pulpit back. Like, it is awesome. In years past, the pulpit was put squarely in the center of the platform in front of the sanctuary. And what it was meant to symbolize was the proclamation of the Word of God as the core piece of the worship gathering. But like many things, people ruined what was designed to be a good thing. And so people began interpreting this pulpit as a place that divided the speaker from the people. And because of what we've learned in our years of communication studies, Having a large piece of furniture between a speaker and the people is an obstructive thing. So pulpits have gotten smaller, like this one, or they've been made of clear plastic. Have you seen those? You know, it's like Wonder Woman's jet, you know, or whatever. 
they turned into music stands or they just put a table and they put like a stool beside it and they just you know, doing all these different things or nothing at all. The guy's just up there speaking and he's just kind of going on and doing his like Janet Jackson earpiece thing and all that kind of stuff. So that communication can flow freely and I completely understand that. What I miss is just the liturgical symbolism lost in holding up the word of God. And things like this change all the time with the church. You look at things like the communion table. It's a beautiful thing. Or vestments. Like, this is mine. It's awesome. I get to wear it every day. But when I see that, I'm thinking, like, look at the reverence. Look at the respect. Look at that's awesome. Or, or stained glass, you know? Who does that anymore? Where it tells stories. These don't tell much of a story, but they're pretty. The design of the church. You know, there's all these design elements into a church. Ours was formerly Swedish Baptist, and if you take the screen down, this was supposed to symbolize kind of like the sail and coming out this way because it was a place of immigrants, and this was how it was kind of designed, like a boat, if you see this. Now you get a bunch of warehouses, and you get a bunch of strip mall places and all this kind of stuff, which is fine. I'm not putting those things down. What I want to point out is that we can never lose the Word of God at the center whatever that looks like, whatever it looks like. And the way things look isn't just that big of a deal, but we just can't leave out God's word, which is what the modern church is doing when we focus on things like social justice, when we just focus on community. Whatever our so-called liturgy today is that we're focusing on pulling us away from the word of God, we can't do that solely. Because if we really focus on the Word of God, social justice, parenting, relationships, community, marriage, all those different topics that people value and they want to put a lot of energy, investment, and focus on, the Bible brings all of those things into focus if we focus on the Word of God. And not just on these individual things that are just kind of our pet things at the time. Now back to the people that were gathered at the square their church expected to hear from God. Do we expect that here? Do we expect to hear from God? Now, if you have that expectation, how will you respond when you do hear from the word of God? And here it is. Look back to verse 6 here. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The people answered, Amen. See, this is when people confirm, they affirm, they reaffirm the words of another. It's saying, so be it. I've had an awesome, awesome privilege to share at several black churches. They know how this is done. <laughs> they know how this is done. Here, not so much. <laughs> you guys, though, I have to confess, are better than most multi-ethnic churches. You are. But you are a distant second to the black church. I'm just saying. And they lifted up their hands. Again, you're a distant second. <laughs> but this is all cool because you be you, okay? You be you. I'm just saying, we are second, like the Cleveland Cavaliers. Because <laughs> we all know the Warriors are going to win the championship, right? We know this. 
and there are hundreds of thousands of people, not just in the Bay Area, but who have had some sort of relationship with the Bay Area, that are cheering. They are confirming, they are affirming, they are reaffirming the Warriors that when they score, they cheer and they say, yes! Or they go, three, three! Or they go, defense, defense! In essence, they're saying amen, aren't they? In essence, they're saying amen. And then the high fives after a score, or, or they're just like, yeah, hands up, and fist bumps, and like people they don't even know, and they're just going, the wave, like, you know, and it's like going around Oracle. What is that? The lifting of hands, essentially. You see, people are doing this already. They're doing this. And what is, is an excitement. It's a passion. It's an enthusiasm. It's a posture for what is good. Because we like that. Are we like this with God? We tend not to be, right? They bowed their heads and worshipped. See, Warrior Fan does this too. Even Warrior Adversary does this too the heckler, the whatever, they do this too because when Steph Curry breaks the ankle of a defender or he sinks that three right in front of their face, what do people do? You just pan out on the video, what do they do? They're doing this from the rafters up top, right? They're, oh, they're doing this already. You see people do this already. Why? People recognize greatness. They recognize like an impossibility, like how did he do that? Or they notice something that's really, really good. How much more are we to amen the Lord, to lift our hands to the creator of the universe, to bow our heads and to worship God? People get all worshipful about a ball going into a net. Are you serious? Who do you think created Steph Curry? Who's able to sink that thing into the net? Ask him yourself if you ever get the chance. He'll tell you. He'll credit the one. This is our God. And yet those who are worshipful about a ball going into a net or stopping a ball going into the net have a difficult time worshiping God. Are you kidding me? who created the universe, who can heal you, who can deliver you from bondage. And Christians are the ones who are out of touch with reality? You're nuts! If people really want to get a glimpse of reality and the church in its glory, it's something that's really hard to see in the United States unless you go to like a basketball game. Because we have so many distractions. We have so many resources. We have all these other things that makes it really tough. It makes it really hard to see through all of the stuff to get a clear glimpse of God. The closest I ever got was at a Burmese refugee camp in Thailand that was right across the border from Myanmar. And it was the Korean people. The people that we rent to in the afternoon, the Korean people. Those people. And how God just kind of blesses, you know, and makes things come back around. And so the Korean people are an indigenous Burmese people group. And I experienced just a powerful 
amen with them. The authentic lifting up of their hands, the genuine bowing of their heads, and the passionate worship of the Lord. And all it was was just this open air building with some corrugated metal on top, and it was raining really hard, and you can just hear the pitter-patter up there. But what was there under that? A pulpit with the word of the Lord right in front on this wooden stage, right on top of it, and that was it. That was all of it. And they worshiped God with their faces to the ground. Now every once in a while, it happens here. And because you guys are an unpretentious group of people, when you worship the Lord with your face to the ground, I know it's real. It's a real thing that's happening here. And our honest and sincere posture during worship is telling of our relationship with God and how beautiful it is to see people come to the realization of the greatness of God and worship him and their faces to the ground. Verses 8 and 9. They read from the book from the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. They gathered together. They listened to the word of the God. They responded with amen. They lifted their hands. They bowed their heads. They worshiped God with their faces to the ground. Lastly, they wept. Why is this? The word of God helped them see what wasn't right about their relationship with God. It helped them see that. And... It caused them to be remorseful and sorrowful because of that. They could see that clearly. Now, there's a huge, huge difference between guilt and shame versus remorse and sorrow. Huge. I'm Asian, so trust me. I know, right? Any of you who have experienced Asian churches, you know what I am talking about. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Lift your hands, bow your heads, and worship with me. Amen. Like, the Lord delivered me from that guilt and that shame because it was heavy. It's not just church either. I mean, with academics, with your family life, with all this type of stuff, it's heavy. See, the guilt and shame theology, it wants something from you. It wants something from you. And when it doesn't receive that, there is sometimes anger for not delivering upon that. So the message of guilt and shame is a simple way to get you to change your mind, to change your behavior. That's what it does. But here's a problem with guilt. You feel guilty even when you're not. You're perfectly innocent, but then you feel guilty. Now, what is guilt? Guilt, it's two things. One thing it is, is it's a state of having done wrong, right? So you cheat on your taxes, IRS catches you, you are guilty for cheating on your taxes. Fact. Guilty. Another thing that it is, is it's this painful feeling of self-reproach caused from the belief that you have done wrong. So even though it's more of a perception, more than a fact, like you cheated on taxes. So for example... Some of you that are here during Memorial Day weekend, your parents told you to go home and visit them, and you didn't, and so you feel guilty. I'm not one of those. 
I got that, but I don't feel guilty. Anyway, but the Bible, looking at this biblically, refers to guilt as a state, not a feeling. It's a state, not a feeling. Look at this. Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 4, it says this. You have become guilty by the blood that you have shed. You see why? Like, there's a state to it. Like, you cheated on taxes, therefore that's why you're guilty. Here's another one. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we are guilty for breaking the law. We have missed the mark of righteousness, and we need God's solution of freeing us from that state of guilt. Enter Jesus and the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. So do you see the difference between the state of guilt that all of us have? We all have a state of guilt. We are all sinful. And that of the feelings of guilt. They're two different things, right? Because that feeling of guilt, it may or may not actually be true. Am I guilty for not going back to Los Angeles to visit moms on Memorial Day weekend? No, I got a job, I got a family, I got a church. There's no guilt on my part. But we're all guilty of our sin. Now, that state of sin we're all guilty of, but that feeling of guilt, that is not of God. That's not from God. That's our conscience. That's our conscience condemning us, telling us, were bad. Feelings of guilt, they are painful when you've experienced that, and they result in this condemnation of ourselves. Now, shame, shame is a different thing also. Shame is also a painful feeling. It's when one has lost the respect of others because of our own actions. That's shame. So shame is also a state, and it's also a feeling as well. It's a sense of being bad, a state of internal condemnation. So what's the difference between guilt and shame? Guilt is our self-condemnation of what we do, of what we do. And shame shames us for who we are. Let me give you an example. I shared with you guys a few weeks ago that I yelled at my kids, like, and that was a total overreaction. That was a terrible thing for me to do. So... I feel guilty for yelling at my kids. See the action tied to my feeling of guilt. I feel shame for being a bad parent for that time period. What is happening is that my conscience monitors what is good and what is bad. That's not God. My conscience is doing that. And when my conscience approves, then I feel good about things. But when it doesn't, then I feel guilt and I feel shame because my conscience is not approving of my actions or my words or the things that I'm doing. So this is what's happening. My conscience has been deified. Do you see the idolatry with guilt and shame? You are deifying your conscience because your conscience is dependent on what is happening around you which has you feel the way that you feel. Which is a problem because my conscience is not God. And my conscience is part of my entire sin nature. My conscience is part of that. As Christians, we are to be free from guilt-ridden, shameful consciences. Because those consciences are sinful. They are part of you. And yes, they change. And yes, they mature. And yes, they develop. And we learn to trust them more. But they aren't perfect. 
What the guilt and the shame do is they focus on our badness. They focus on our worthlessness. They focus on our deserved punishment. But what is that really? It's just being us being consumed with ourself. Just being totally self-absorbed. What happened to the Christian mentality of being other-focused, other-minded? So what guilt and shame do is they pull us into self-centeredness and away from the mindfulness of others. Because we're just focused on our badness, our worthlessness, our deserved punishment. You look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9-11. through 11. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief. Plug in the words remorse, sorrow here. So that you suffered no loss through us, for godly grief, remorse, sorrow, produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas godly grief, plug in guilt, plug in shame, produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief, remorse, sorrow has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. You see the difference between remorse and sorrow and shame and guilt? See, remorse is empathetic. Remorse is other focus. It is centered on reconciliation. And the reason we feel awful, even with remorse and sorrow, is because of the pain that we've brought somebody else. That pain leads us to seek healing, to seek restoration. Guilt does not do that. Guilt is all about me. It seeks to justify why I did what I did and why I'm not going to repair something because it's focused on how bad I am. So how can I repair anything if I'm this bad? If I'm this worthless, how am I going to do anything? I just can't do that. And so if the focus is how bad you are, that's guilt. That's shame. But if your response is about loving your neighbor as yourself, that's sorrow. That's remorse. Do we weep not out of guilt and shame, but out of remorse and sorrow? Because I think that's what was happening in Nehemiah chapter 8 with those people. They weren't weeping because of this guilty feeling and this shameful feeling. They finally got to a place that they realized remorse. Not because of how bad they were, but because of our love to... God, our love to our neighbors around us, that 50,000 people, put that onto ourselves now. What's happening with us? I hope that when you leave this place, you don't feel guilt-ridden and you don't feel shame-ridden. That is not the hope. Because if you look at the people in Nehemiah chapter 8, they left joyfully, even though they were weeping and mourning. They left joyfully. Why? Because the things between them and God... We're good because they repented, they restored the relationship, they reconciled in their remorse and in their sorrow. When you leave in guilt and you leave in shame, you usually don't feel that. You still usually feel, I'm guilty. I'm still guilty. It's still a shaming thing that happened to me. There is no bridge that helps you leave with joy. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. Don't be guilt ridden. Don't be shame ridden. 
And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. God loves you so much. You're not to live a life of guilt. You're not to live a life of shame. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you encounter God, may you encounter his love, his grace, his kindness. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. His kindness. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray, God, that our church would be good at representing you. And Lord, forgive us for ever misrepresenting you because I know that that is within us as well as that sin nature is in us. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to come to a place of authentic worship, a place of amen, a place of lifting our hands, a place of bowing down our heads, putting our faces to the floor of weeping, of having that type of a relationship with you, Lord, not of guilt, not of shame, but of remorse and sorrow when that is there. And also when that happens, Lord, to leave in peace, joy, and hope. In Jesus' name, amen.